Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, honest question, honest answer. Who read ahead? Okay. And you came anyhow. You were, you were so grossed out by it, you had to see what is this all about. Hey, um, if you would, I, I know I've, I've given you a little bit of information over time. Uh, we don't want to continue coming back saying the same thing all the time, but there have been some developments in terms of our search for a building. Uh, you know that we've been looking at the shopping center about a mile south on Butler Avenue. It used to be the uh, bottom dollar food store was in there. And so uh, the elders are going to be meeting on Monday and tomorrow night, and we're going to be you know, making our final decision as we pray about this. And so we'll be submitting, we believe, we're going to be submitting a letter of intent um, to acquire the place. So please be praying. Um, just please be praying about all that. God knows what's ahead. That's the thing, you know, as much as we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, at the same time, we got lots of people coming to this place. We don't know how to expand it. We only have so much square footage. We just keep kind of moving the rooms around, but you can only do so much with the space you have. And uh, so please be praying. We really appreciate that. I had an Uncle Charlie uh, who fought on Destroyer or served on Destroyer in uh, the Pacific Theater. And uh, like a lot of young sailors, you know, he saw horrible things. And when he came back, he spent the rest of his life self-medicating with Rheingold. Uh, those of us who are old enough know what that's a beer. The, the younger guys may not know that. But um, anyhow, he did that for years. And uh, I remember, I, I must have been, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And uh, Uncle Charlie lost his first leg uh, because the combination of alcoholism and diabetes and then gangrene. Uh, so they took his first leg above the knee, and then uh, gangrene moved to the second leg, well, the only one he had left, uh, and uh, he didn't stop drinking, he just let them take that leg too, and he lived the rest of his life, which wasn't that long, uh, in, uh, in a wheelchair with both legs gone. Good sense of humor, I guess possibly because he was half in the bag most of the time. But uh, he, was, he was one of those funny guys. But, you know, I look back on him and think everything he did. But they had to amputate, right? Because, because there was this gangrene, this death that was in his body. And, and it's an interesting picture for me about how God does that. You know, he, just as we know in our own lives, when something is so severe, there's no turning back. You can't stop the cancer or you can't stop the gangrene or whatever that disease is or that tumor that's there. It has to be cut out. Um, and God does that in our lives, you know, he will send us when, you know, when we're in sin. He'll remind us in his word, if we're listening, if we're reading, that it's time to stop that. Or he'll send that special friend or a spouse to say, you need to stop that. But if we continue, he'll speak louder and louder until finally he has to amputate one way or the other. He has to remove it one way or the other. And he does the same thing with nations. He certainly does it. We see it here uh, with Israel. I asked how many read ahead uh, because had you read ahead, I don't know if you would have come this morning because many of you would be saying, what on earth is this all about? Well, it's probably the bloodiest portion of the Bible as far as I know. Uh, 
the bloodiest description that you're going to find. These two chapters especially, chapters 9 and 10, are really, really, really ugly. Real quick, just to, for uh, some of us know, and some of us may not, so let's just kind of recalibrate. Long ago and far away, God, God forms a nation called Israel, and I'm, I'm just zooming past Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way on up to the first king, King Saul. Uh, king Saul disqualifies himself, and really wasn't the king God had in mind all along. He was the people's king. The king that God had in mind, of course, was David. David serves until he dies off the scene in 971. His son Solomon becomes the king that year. Solomon serves as king for the next 40 years. Does all kinds of stupid things, as, as much wisdom as he has. You know, just because you got wisdom doesn't mean you can't be stupid. And uh, Solomon certainly was that. And for the sake of David, um, God didn't destroy the kingdom, but he divided the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom made up of these ten tribes and the two, uh, the, two, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south. So we have Judah in the south is the name of the southern kingdom, and Israel it's called in the north. I know r r many of you know that, some of you may not. And most of what we've been looking at so far in our study in First and Second Kings has really kind of focused on the northern kingdom. We're going to start switching to the southern kingdom. And in chapter 8, there was some references to the southern kingdom. We're just going to look at, and I'm really going to just summarize a few things today, because there's one verse in particular I think we need to look at. But it's interesting, we look at this man who comes on the scene, this surgeon that God intends for the northern kingdom. Because all, all of the bloodshed in the northern kingdom, because of all that the household and, 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 and the family, I should say, of Ahab and Jezebel and what their descendants have done, what Baal worship has done uh, in the northern kingdom, God wants to put an end to it. And he calls this surgeon, really a butcher, uh, who comes along. And he is God's man. That's the amazing thing. We have this idea of this is the way it ought to be, and yet here's this butcher, this bloody man. And we can say, well, he didn't do it the way God wanted him to. And you can debate that all you want, but God knows all things. He knew exactly what Jehu was going to do, and yet God still holds Jehu responsible for what he's done. I think it's interesting, it's, it's an important reminder for us, I think, that God always has a man or a woman on the scene that he's going to use to bring correction or bring direction when it's needed, whether it's Moses, when the time was right, or Joshua, whether it's Deborah or Gideon, Esther for such a time as this. You can go through, there's all sorts of names we can look at, but we're going to look at this one, Jehu. What a man. Before we go anywhere with it, let's look at this. Chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. In those days, it says, verse 32, the Lord began to cut off. In those days, meaning the wickedness of Israel, because it wasn't getting better. When you look at the kings of the northern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom, in the northern kingdom, we have these, uh, I guess it's 19 kings, and there wasn't a good one in the bunch. There's anyone who was kind of okay, and I'm stretching okay. I'm stretching the definition of okay. It would be Jehu. And he was, a, he was a bad apple in many, many ways. But he was better than the rest in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, you have 20 kings, uh, and I think it's uh, seven 
were pretty good, and the rest were ugh, kind of bums. And God is going to deal with the northern kingdom first. And so he's doing this work that we're going to look at today. But in, in, in verses 32 and 33, in those days, God began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hesael, who was the king of Syria, Hesael uh, conquered them in all the territory of Israel from the, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and the Bashan. So anyhow, all that to say, God was cutting off certain parts of the nation of Israel. Now, for, for some of you this morning, or actually in many ways for all of us, it's like, okay, well, so what? Well, it's a good reminder, God does that. You can certainly see that in the history, really, of most of the nations on earth, not just the ones that are what we would call biblical nations. You can certainly see it in terms of Great Britain, what God did with Great Britain during the 20th century. At one time, the slogan for, for Great Britain was the, the sun never sets on, on the British Empire. And no matter where you go, there was some colony that, that was owned by Great Britain. But because of their dealing with Israel, and be, literally, because of how they dealt with the Jews and then how they dealt with Israel in terms of uh, their return to the land, um, God began to cut them off. And they're really just an island today for all practical purposes. And you can make that case, we don't have time this morning, but you can make that case for many of the European nations. You can make that case for many of the nations on earth. What most Americans don't like to accept is that that's what he's doing with us also today. He really is. There's a lot going on in the world, and it frightens us. You know, it's an interesting thing. You know, I've got to be careful what I, what I do here. But, you know, I find it interesting that our news programming has gotten so strange that most of us have no idea what's really going on in the world. And, and, and you know, just because if you, if you watch Fox, you may think, oh, I'm getting the news. No, you're just getting this much out of that much. If you say, I'm, I, I'm watching, you know, One America News, or the, if you're still only getting that much, there's all this stuff that we're not getting. There's so much that's going on in the world that, that we don't recognize, that we don't know about. God is doing business with many nations on earth today, and he's doing it with America. We'll come back to that. God appoints a surgeon, a butcher, and his name is Jehu. And Elisha uh, appoints a young prophet. Elisha is a colorful character, and he's coming toward the end of his career at this point. And he, uh, he appoints a young prophet to go find this one Jehu and to anoint him. He gives him a cruise of oil. He says, go find him, go to such and such a place, and pour this oil over him and anoint him king. Go into that place, find him, take him into another room, and then pour this oil over him. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, that's, that's a way of saying you're the king, you're pouring oil over someone to anoint someone. And you're, which is kind of weird if you think about it, you know, having a, a quart of extra virgin olive oil just poured all over you, and now you're a greasy king. And, and so, and, and Jehu is the kind of guy you really don't want to mess with. Elisha says, you go in, you do this, you say that to him, and then you get out of there, you flee. And so he does that. He goes to this place he finds Jehu. He says, are you Jehu? Yes, he is. I need to talk to you. Takes him into another room, and uh, he, he pours this oil over him, and, um, uh, and, and he says that you're going to be the king of Israel. And um, so he opened the door, verse 10. Uh, actually, let me go back for a moment. It says this. He says, uh, 
uh, verse 9, he arose, he went into the house, and he poured the oil on Jehu's head. And he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. Jehu, Jehu was a general under the household of Ahab. Now Ahab's dead at this point, but Jehoram is Ahab's son and he's ruling over the northern kingdom. We're also going to see a guy by the name of Ahaziah, who's the king over Judah, but he's related to the household of Ahab, so he factors in here. Some of this seems really arcane. I realize it comes together at some point. So maybe not this morning, but it will come together eventually. And so he says, you'll strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Haya. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he did what Elisha told him to do. He opened the door and he split. And Jehu comes out. The other guys say, who was that madman? And he says, you know who he is. He actually thought it was a practical joke. He thought he'd been set up. They said, no, we don't know anything about it. And he said, well, he said this anatomy. They all take off their cloaks. They throw them on the ground. They get on their knees and they say, you know, long live Jehu king over Israel. And so it begins. And so he gets in his chariot and he starts heading over toward uh, Jezreel because that's where, or toward Samaria rather, because that's where um, Jehoram was. By the way, when you read Joram or you read Jehoram, it's just the way it works. It's, they're, they're variant names for the same guy. So whether you say Jehoram or Joram, same thing. And I know it becomes even more confusing because there's a king at about the same time in the southern kingdom by the same name but we're not talking about him now, even though I just talked about him. So <laughs> I just want to confuse things by trying to straighten things out. So, so, it, so we read, beginning in verse 14, that um, Jehu is on his way to kill Jehoram. Jehoram had been wounded in a battle with Syria, and he's, he's nursing his wounds, he's recovering from those wounds, and uh, and here he is at, at Jezreel, and they, uh, you know, they didn't have radar in those days, they didn't have satellites, they didn't have telescopes and, and binoculars and things like that, they just have a guy on a high tower. And, and they, see, uh, they see this chariot coming, and these men with him, Jehu's leading the charge, and they're coming toward Jezreel. Who is it? They, they don't know. They send out uh, a man to find out, who is this guy who's coming? He says, who are you? And he says, is, is it peace? Are you coming in peace, in other words? And he said, what, you know, what's peace to you and to your master? If you're with me, get behind me. And so the, you know, the guy who went out you know, on, on, you know, on behalf of, of Jehoram now gets in line with Jehu. And the guy in the watchtower says, uh, we're looking for him. We know he went out there, but now he's in line with them. Send out another guy. They send out another guy. He gets in line with them. And they say, you know, we're looking. We can't figure it out. But the driving is like that. Uh, I love this. You've got to look at it for yourself. If nothing else, you want to, th there's a couple of verses you never want to forget here. And this is one of them, verse 20. So the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and he's not coming back. The driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nif Nimshi for he drives furiously. Jehu is from Jersey. He's, 
He, you could tell him by the way he drove. You know, there's only, they, they said there's only two types of drivers in New Jersey, the quick and the dead, right? And, um, and I know that because I'm from Jersey. So anyhow, so, so he goes out, all that to say. Um, we find that he comes up uh, to Jehoram and also Ahaziah, uh, and he, he shoots an arrow, kills Jehoram, wounds Ahaziah. Later on, he, uh, he dies from his wounds. We come, verse 30. See, we're making progress here because I want us to focus on one thing, but I want you to see it all without having a bloodbath on your hands this morning because you may be going to lunch after this. And this is a really bloody chapter. And we come to verse 30, Jezebel. And this is quite a woman, and I know we've only looked at her a little bit over the course of these past months. But uh, she's, uh, she's really somebody else. All the jokes aside about uh, Bill and Hillary and Ahab and Jezebel, there, there's no one we know in our day who really can measure up or down, however you want to measure it, to Jezebel. This is one witch of a woman, and I mean that as seriously as I can put it. And uh, so we read that uh, Jehu came to Jezreel, and there in Jezreel is Jezebel, and she's in this uh, like a second story or probably a second story window. And she sees Jehu coming and uh, she, she painted up her face and put her hair up. And she's not a, all that young at this point. And I realize, you know, mid 50s to 60s doesn't sound very old to a lot of us in this room. But in that day, that was pretty old. Uh, she's apparently still quite the looker, uh, but she paints up her face and she puts up her hair. And in her own way, she's kind of flirting with him, but she's challenging him. And uh, Jehu doesn't take any of it. He just said, you know, is there anybody up there uh, who's on our side? And there's, there were a few eunuchs up there. And he says, throw her down. And they took Jezebel and they threw her out the window. And the scripture says that she fell to the ground and her blood splattered on the horses and on the walls. And so we read there that Jehu went and had breakfast. <laughs> hey, he'd been working hard. It was time to eat. That's the kind of man he is. He's a butcher. He's, it, these things don't offend him. This is the kind of stuff that you and I, I hope, only know, if we know it at all, we only know it because of movies we've seen. But this is a, a man who knows war, and, and war in a way that most of us in this room have no experience with. And he's a, he's a ruthless man. Nothing's going to stand in his way. Certainly not Jezebel. He's going to get rid of her. As much as he is he's a man who's supposed to be loyal to the family of Ahab and to Jezebel and all that, it didn't take him much to turn and to turn on Ahab and all of his descendants and on Jezebel. And so here now he comes and he does what he's been told to do. He goes and he eats, has breakfast or brunch or lunch or whatever it is that he ate. And then he said, well, we should bury her because she is, of course, a king's daughter. And they came out and they found that the dogs had already eaten all of her with the exception of the palms of her hands and a couple of other pieces. There wasn't much left there of her to bury. Uh, and we read this that in verse 36. So they came back and they said to him, and this is, the, this is the word of the Lord, which spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse 
on the surface of the field, in other words, as dog droppings. That's what it means. This is what the Bible shines in these places. If you have King James, it's even more colorful. Um, in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. So there be no, uh, no evidence of her again. What's running through this is that she dies at a plot of land, which we didn't go over in our studies here, but you've probably read, at Naboth's vineyard. This is the, the vineyard that Ahab wanted, but Naboth didn't want to sell because it was family's vineyard. And Jezebel said, you're a crybaby. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she said. You're a crybaby. I'll get it for you. And she set up Naboth so that he died, and she gave it to, to Ahab. God said that you'd both die there, and it turns out later on Ahab died there, and now Jeze uh, here, here, uh, Jezebel is dying in the same place. So far in our study this morning, most, if not all of you, are saying this is not a reason to come to church today. But it's important that we get this. We read this in chapter 10. Don't worry, we're almost done. That, that Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now these are, no doubt he had more wives than Jezebel, but he, these are, when they say sons, usually in, in the Old Testament, sons includes grandsons, okay? So, but they're 70 male descendants. Now look, this is ruthless stuff. This is bloody stuff we're looking at. But what's about to happen here and continue to happen through the end of the chapter 10 is not uncommon in ancient days. It didn't just happen in Israel. It didn't just happen in the ancient Near East. It happened in Europe. It happened pretty much wherever one despot or one king conquers another. He kills all of the descendants of the one he's conquered so that no one can come back and say that throne is rightfully mine because you know, I would have inherited it from my father. And that's, what, that's what he's doing it here. But he's saying that he's doing it, and he is right in saying this, that he's doing it according to the word of the Lord. So we read here that they had had these 70 sons, male descendants, uh, that are in Samaria. So Jehu wrote, he sent letters to Samaria, he said to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those uh, who reared his sons, saying, as soon as you get this letter, uh, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses and fortified city and all these things, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, and set them on his throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were afraid. They were afraid of Jehu. They already knew what he was going to do. Anyhow, as it all turns out, um, he says, take their lives. And so they took their lives, and they sent the heads of all these men back to Jehu, 70 heads in baskets. Are you hungry for lunch yet? <laughs> and they put them in two piles, one pile on one side, one pile on the other side of the front gate. What do people think when they come to your front gate? He does this. He also kills 42 others, also related to Ahaziah and to Jehoram and therefore to Ahab in one form or another. By that point, he's killed them all. And then at the end, or toward the end of chapter 10, beginning in verse 18, now he gets rid of Baal worship. 
And what he does is he calls on all of the people in the northern kingdom. We're going to have a great Baal worship fest. And everybody comes in and he says, let's make sure that when everybody comes in this room, there are no Jehovah worshipers around here. No Jehovah worshipers. And, they, and he made sure that there were no Jehovah worshipers. He said, we are going to worship Baal. I am Jehu. I worship Baal and Baal alone, which wasn't true, but he's, that was his ruse. He got them all in a room and then he told 80 others, his men, don't let any of them escape. If any one of them escapes, it'll be your life for his. And he killed them all there. What did he do? What did he accomplish? Well, he accomplished the eradication of all of Ahab's descendants. He got rid of everything related to Ahab, related to Jezebel. I mean, we, we forget sometimes when we read this passage or, or this portion of the Old Testament just how terrible these people were and just how wicked was Baal worship, just how wicked was this kingdom. And I could go on and talk about lots of those things. Uh, for our purposes this morning, it's important that we recognize he did that. He got rid of Baal worship. What he didn't do was to eradicate the golden calf cult that got all this stuff started in the northern kingdom. Yet even so, God keeps Jehu and his descendants on the throne for four generations. For about 100 years, they're on the throne. Well, that's just great, John. So what? Yeah, I know. Well, there's a lot we could look at, but we don't have time for that. This is what I want us to look at. Dial back and go to chapter 10, verse 10. Because there in verse 10, he says this. Know now, this is, <laughs> know now, that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. The Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. We'll unpack that in a bit. But certainly that first part, I mean, the whole, the whole verse obviously is true. Because that's exactly what's happening with Jehu. He's doing exactly what God told Elijah to have happen and that Elijah told Elisha to have happen. Jehu is making sure that it, that it occurs. Know now, and this is important for you and for me, to remember this. Because if we're not careful, so often we take our Bibles as extracurricular or we look for a happy verse to remind us of something nice and to say that, oh yeah, God really does love me. And those things are important to remember. But know now that nothing, know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord. In other words, to fall to the earth, meaning nothing's going to drop, nothing's going to fail. Everything that God says, everything that God promises is going to occur. He doesn't always tell us when. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he's very precise. Other times he's not. But I find this to be a very hopeful verse. The most remarkable thing to me about the Bible, the most remarkable thing to me about the word of God is its complete accuracy. Just how absolutely faithful is what God has to say. The Lord had said to Elijah, Elijah, Many years earlier, he said in 1 Kings 21, 
He said, thus says the Lord, you have killed a man. He says to, uh, to Ahab and to Jezebel, but he says to Ahab, you have killed a man and you've taken his possession. This is Naboth and his vineyard. And thus in the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your blood, Ahab. And of course, it's, I think it's about six or seven years later, uh, three years later, rather. Ahab was in a war with Syria. Uh, he dies, and the dogs licked up his blood, and they ate him. Elijah had also prophesied. He said to, uh, to Ahab and to his household, thus says the Lord, the Lord will destroy all of your sons. Every trace of you will be eliminated from the kingdom of Israel. And we see that's exactly what's happening here. Not one word of the Lord ever falls to the ground. Nothing ever fails. There's times where we say, I know he promised this, but how does this come true? When is it going to happen? And we spend a lot of time, very often, many of us will spend a lot of time trying to figure out, how is this going to come about? Oh, we can't always figure out. Sometimes we can kind of see a trajectory or we can see a pattern happening and we can get an idea of how close we are to an event. But we don't know all of these things. God will take away all of your posterity. And here in chapter 10, God has done all of that. All of the posterity of Ahab is gone. He said in 1 Kings 21, 23, that in the same way that the dogs licked the blood of Ahab, the dogs will also lick the blood and destroy the body of Jezebel in the same plot of land, Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel. And that's exactly what we just read that they would do. Didn't happen tomorrow. Well, a lot of times we hear a prophecy, we think, well, it has to happen right away, but it doesn't. It happens in God's timing. He's got these things. That's important for me to be reminded of that God really does have these things together. Even though I can get anxious sometimes, I can get bummed out like it's not happening on my timetable. Where is it? When are you going to do this, God? But he is, because not one word of the Lord's will ever fall to the ground. All of God's word is like this. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord will do nothing. Surely the sovereign Lord will do nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Everything that God will do has already been revealed. There's not one thing that he will do or that he has done that has not already been revealed. Paul says, Romans chapter 15, verse 6, everything written aforetime was written for our learning. Everything. Even the, even the bloody stuff that we read sometimes, we just want to go, oh, do I, why do I have to read this stuff? Everything written in the past was written for our learning that through endurance, endurance and encouragement in the scriptures, we might have really important word, hope. Increasingly, the people of God in the world today, and in many ways, especially in America, I think that's my opinion, increasingly the people of God are finding themselves without hope. And it may have to do with the fact that, this is a topic I'm, I'm just going to reference, I can't really open it up, but I, it seems to me sometimes it may be that the reason that the people of God are finding themselves without hope sometimes is because we've placed our hope in the wrong place. 
So often our hope is in the money that we've made or the money we think we can make. This is an American issue. It's, it's real for everybody. But especially in our nation, we don't, I, I don't know sometimes if we recognize just how different we are compared to a lot of the other people on planet Earth. We, we've placed so much of our confidence in our Americanism, in our economic abilities, the engine of our economy, our ability to make money, the patterns that we've seen from our parents on through our generation and forward, thinking as long as I, I buy this and I build equity, now I have money, all that. And when the balloon begins to pop, we lose hope. Why did we lose hope? Because it wasn't here. It was in those other things. And I'm not saying that's not a problem when those happen. I'm just saying it's, it's an indicator. If I'm losing hope, and yet I have the scripture as a place where I can always have hope, but I'm losing hope, it sounds to me that the reason for that is that my hope has been misplaced. Now, that's just my opinion. You may not think that. But it is my opinion because the scripture seems to back that hope, back, back that up. Everything written aforetime was written for our learning. Everything written aforetime was written for us, for our edification. So that through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. We just looked at a couple of things, indicators of, of how God's word never falls, it never fails. We've spent a long time in the past, no time to do it this morning, but Daniel chapter nine, I mean, really all of the book of Daniel is just full of this, but Daniel chapter nine is so explicit in telling us exactly when Messiah was coming to Israel. In fact, to the very day, Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27, we've been through that study before a number of times. To the very day, the day when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. It's amazing how many Christians don't know that, and yet there it is in the scripture, it stares us in the face. And yet that's not the only thing it tells us. It also tells us not only that the day that he would come into Jerusalem, just in those four verses, but that he would be crucified after he comes into that city. That after that, the temple, the Jewish temple would be destroyed. And that the people who destroyed it would later on come and bring a great world leader who would help to rebuild the third temple. And we see that on the scene right now. We see the third temple about to be rebuilt. If you've been paying attention to the things that are going on in Israel right now, many people have heard about a red heifer. The red heifer really isn't important, as, as important as we think that is. That's not so important. I don't know if you realize, they're building a train line from Tel Aviv up into the train station on the top of the mountain in Jerusalem to bring Jewish pilgrims from all over the world to the third temple, which isn't standing right now. But the reason they're building the train line is because they plan for that temple to be built very soon. Very soon. I don't know if you're, if you're hearing what I'm saying. Very soon. Now, there are people who have control over the Temple Mount, 
who have a problem with that. You may not know that, but they have a, they're called Muslims. And, 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 and that 33-acre spot there in, in Jerusalem is one of the most, is the most disputed territories in all of the world. Jerusalem itself, it, it, has no, it has no strategic value. It doesn't have any water. It doesn't, it doesn't have any, there's nothing to it that any nation of the earth would care about, except that all the nations of the earth are arguing over Jerusalem. Why? Because God said that it would happen. The things that are happening in our time were predicted by God. Surely the sovereign Lord will do nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophet. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and a host of other scriptures tell us not only that the Messiah who would come, would die, but the means by which he would die. All of this in the Old Testament, written in, in some cases a thousand years or more before the event itself. That the Messiah, after being crucified, not just dying, but being crucified, crucifixion, something that was invented at most 300 years before the event itself, was prophesied a thousand years before the event. How on earth did David, who wrote Psalm 22, where did he get that information that it would be crucifixion? There was no reason that he would know anything about that. And we can glibly say, well, God told him. I understand that, but marvel at this. Marvel at this. Not one word of the Lord will fall to the ground. Everything that God has promised must come true. That, he would, that Jesus would be crucified. That he would be resurrected. Genesis chapter 22. Jonah chapter 2, which a lot of people don't think about as a resurrection passage. And other passages in the Old Testament pointing to the resurrection. Not the, not the resuscitation, but the resurrection of Messiah himself. Ezekiel 36. Predicting that the mountains of Israel themselves would call the people of Israel from all over the world back to the land. Read it. Read it closely later on this afternoon. That the mountains themselves will say, come back to us. Ezekiel 37. That they would come back. In fact, it was fulfilled. May 14, 1948. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Oh, he's going to talk about that again. Yeah, I will. Because the things that are going on that I, I just can't hear on Fox News, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, they're not telling us. And for that matter, OAN and, and, and Newsmax, they're not talking about this stuff. But it's happening. What's that? You know, the Lord says, Ezekiel 38, verse 3, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Magog. In other words, I'm against you, Gog, this chief angel over Russia. I will put hooks in your jaw and I will do the following things. We're all familiar with this prophecy. If we look closely at the events that are going on, it's, you know, it's breathtaking to see how the, the big shakers of the world, the muckety-mucks of the world, can, can gin up a war because they want to. Not because it needs to happen but because they want to. I'm not saying that what Russia has done with Ukraine uh, is a good thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But we're on the brink of a world war. 
I, I wonder sometimes if we realize that because our news media is not telling us that and most of us just go happily on. Our attitude is, well, if something bad happens, they're gonna tell us. There's no reason to tell us until it does happen. So here we are, actually the only real source we have is right here because not one word of the Lord will fall to the ground. I mean, if you look at the things that have been going on just in the last couple of days. Russia right now, uh, on, was it Thursday? Annexed four eastern provinces of Ukraine. Putin has lectured the United States saying, don't tell me what I can and can't do with my nuclear weapons. You were the first ones to use them at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So... Don't tell me what I can't do. He's got Chechen leaders, he's got other leaders saying, go ahead and use tactical nukes. Because after all, he owns the eastern provinces of Ukraine now. The reports are in that in the Olina Air Base uh, up in the, in the Kolsky Peninsula, uh, which is north of Finland, there are more strategic bombers there, Russian bombers, than he's had since the Cold War. It's just happened in the last two weeks. But I'm not hearing it on the news. I'm not seeing it on Fox or Newsmax or OAN or any of these places. But yet it's happening. But the scripture tells me that it'll happen. In fact, one thing that we've probably all heard about is the Nord Stream pipeline and the sabotage of it. And the fingers are pointed Putin's saying that the U.S. has done it. The U.S. is saying that Putin did it. But the biggest problem is that if you live in Europe, you're starting to get pretty cold. You were going to have a problem in the first place because Russia was already holding them hostage. And now he has, he has far less in the way of natural gas than ever had before to even sell at a premium. And yet, while that's happening, Israel, for the first time in history, is producing more natural gas than ever. So it's interesting that we go back to Ezekiel 38, and the Lord says, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince over Magog, Russia. I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will draw you in against my people, and you will come in to take a spoil. A spoil? Yeah, profit, natural gas to take control of those things. There's a lot more going on in the world. I'm just using these as a couple of examples. Everything written in the past was written for our learning, so that endurance and through an encouragement in the scriptures, we might have hope. And yet so often my hope, my hope so often is in other stuff. It's not in what God has said is going to happen. But in my comfort, and we all, look, we all want our comfort. I'm not, I'm not against that. But what we do is we make an assumption. We're going to go and we're going to vote, and we're going to vote the bums out. We're going to get rid of those people, and, you know, and that's fine. That's, not only is that our right, it's our responsibility as Americans. I want to be careful how I say it, because I'm, I want to be careful I'm not pointing a finger too much. but we all know enough about human nature. 
And so, we think, we'll vote the bums out. The red wave will save us. And you know what? We might. We might change the balance in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. That may happen. We watch gas prices in the last, not even two years yet, go up sky high compared to what we were paying before. And bit by bit, they've come down. And most of us, if we've read anything, we know that's artificial, right? It's amazing that we can be happy paying 3.65 a gallon. You know, that's, that's insane. But that's, that's where we are. That's just the way things go. But the only reason those prices have come down is because the administration has reduced our strategic petroleum reserve as significantly as that. Some of you are thinking, this is a Bible study, isn't it? What are you doing talking about this? Because where we are is a place we've never been as a nation. Hear me. Where we are is a place we've never been as a nation. And arguably, it's very difficult to perceive how the U.S., Europe, and the West in general comes back from the place we are. I'm not a doomsayer. Don't misunderstand me. That's the problem, though. We have to see it for what it is. Most of us aren't taking seriously the things that farmers have been saying about food shortages. Most of us aren't taking seriously the things that are going on in Europe right now. We, we talk about inflation, and it's a big deal in America. 8% is probably higher. 8% is high, especially for my children. They've never seen anything like that. Those of us who are my age or so, we've seen that, and we don't want to go back to that again. But the dollar's strong today compared to the other currency. Why? Because in Europe, inflation is running in the 15 16 and 18% right now. There's a reason that Credit Suisse and some of these other banks are beginning to fail. There's a reason for that. Most of you won't read it or you won't hear it in the news that most of us read. But it's happening. And there's a reason for this. It would seem that much of this is manufactured. It didn't just happen. It seems that it's manufactured and yet God says that all these things will happen. Be sure that not one word of the Lord will in any way fall to the ground. Nothing shall fall to the ground of what the Lord has spoken, and we can be sure of that. Where's your hope today? It's easy to just leave here and say, well, that was a weird sermon. He's usually a little perkier. Usually we laugh a little bit more. What was that all about? What it's about is a question. And the question is, where is your hope? I'm serious. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where, what's the focus of your hope? Where is your confidence? How do you know the direction that you're going? Why? If your hope, meaning your confidence, is not in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price for your sins, you are without hope. If you have no hope in him, if you have not placed your confidence, your faith in him, you have no hope. 
if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've come to him for your salvation, now you're in Christ. Well, now how do we move on from here? We have his word. And be sure, the Bible tells us, not one word shall in any way fall to the earth of what the Lord has told us in his word. And so look, don't leave here today, please. Do not leave here. People do it all the time. Don't leave here today if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not come to him for forgiveness of sins, you are in such great danger. It's not an opinion. It's the truth. How do I know? Because not one word of the Lord will in any way fall to the ground. Everything he has said is true. And he said that unless your faith is in Jesus Christ, you will perish in your sins. So come to him today. It's really simple, but it will change your life forever. And you come up here during this last song or come up and see one of us later on. There'll be prayer partners up here and receive the Lord for the rest of us. Look, it's time for us to get serious, not just about how we read the word of God, not just for how we read the word of God, but in walking with him, filled with his spirit, and that we do something that we may not be used to doing. And I'm going to invite you to do it with me now. Would you stand, please?